Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open to Luke chapter 10. We'll continue our study uh, in our Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 16. 1 through 16. I got a little overambitious when I gave uh, Dana that... that, um, those verses, so just 1 through 16. Let's read this together. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, will wipe off, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God. It stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to this portion of your holy and inerrant word, uh, we pray that that Emmanuel would come, uh, that you would be pleased to meet with us, uh, that you would teach us the things that we need to hear from this word. Uh, And Lord, we pray that always Jesus would be set before our eyes, that he would be our motivation for whatever acts, whatever joy we feel. And Lord, we pray that he would be magnified through it all. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today I want to talk to you about purpose. Purpose at an individual level to be sure, but also purpose at the corporate level. Purpose for us as a church family. You know, it seems so often that our focus, and rightly so, it's kind of on a subjective, uh, personal level. We ask, uh, or we consider what these doctrines, what this scripture says to, to me. Uh, how do I apply these teachings to, to my life, uh, to my situation, or to my needs? And again, that, that's, that's a great thing. We certainly want to take God's word and use it in our lives in a real and meaningful way. And he certainly intends for God's people to act by these things. And so there is a subjective nature to the word, uh, but I feel like the, the byproduct of approaching God's word that way is that we seem to forget that Christ has called us together, uh, that in a real way he has made us one as he, in the, as he and the Father are one, right? That's what he says in John chapter 17, Lord, make them one even as we are one. 
And so the, the church, the church as a whole, as he has called us, he has also given purpose. He has also given us mission. In other words, Christ, he has not saved us only to change us individually or to merely change us so that we might act on our own behalf, but he has saved us so that with our individual acts, combined with the the acts and the doings of others around us, the church might support and accomplish the goals that he has set before us. Purpose on the individual level, it leads to purpose at the corporate level and vice versa. The two things go together. You can't have one in Christ's church without the other. And so it's important that we consider both of these things. And so today, the the question that is before us, the, the thing that I really want us to consider is what is the purpose of God's people? What is the purpose of the church? To to make it more personal to us, what is the purpose of a hundred-year-old church, a hundred-year-old ARP church in New Albany, Mississippi, on the side of Highway 15? What has God called us to do? Why has he put us here Together, this group of people, he hasn't done it by chance. Why has he put us together in this place at this time? Is it so that that we can meet together as we are now and just go about our merry way? Uh, Is it so that that we can kind of exist on the fringes of our community, you know, without any real involvement, without really, really any real investment in those outside of our four walls? Are we here just to kind of support ourselves? And I don't, don't say that to diminish that aspect of the church. Certainly, that's a part of what it means to be Christ's church. We edify one another. But is that all he has called us to do? Friends, let's be honest. And look, this hurts me as much as I hope it is going to hurt each one of you. If we are, are, are serious, if we take a hard look at ourselves, whether it's conscious or not, it seems that that is sort of how we operate. Well, we're really good at taking care of our own, but, but outside of a few programs that, that cost us very little in terms of effort or personal sacrifice, we have very little investment in the community around us. In fact, at least once a month, and this is, uh, this is as serious as I can be, at least once a month, I have to tell somebody locally here in New Albany where we are. I have to tell somebody what we believe. I have to tell somebody what we're about. I want you to think about that. We have been in this same spot for 50 years nearly. Uh, We have been here with a, a beautiful setting, with a beautiful steeple, a beautiful church. We're on the side of a fairly major highway, and yet more times than I can count, I have had to tell people where we exist. You know, the thing that that identifies us the most is that we are next to a very large Spanish-inspired home. They say, oh yeah, you're that church next to that house, and we are. We chuckle at that, but we have to ask. Is that our purpose? (laughs) Is that why God has put us here 
in this place? Are we living out what he has called us to do as his church if we are only known as the church next to the house? What is our purpose? Well, friends, obviously that's a question that can't be answered in one sitting, but in our passage today, I want us to see that at least in part our purpose is to go out to go out and to take the gospel into our community. We are called both individually and corporately not to hide away, not, not to sit in our own little walls, in our own little place. We are called into the harvest with the good news of Christ's kingdom. Just like these 72 here, we have been appointed, we have been entrusted with the truth of God's word, with the truth of a Savior who came to to take away the sins of the world. And so let's look at it together and let's ask, what is truly the purpose of New Albany Presbyterian Church? Let's look at it together. The first thing that I want you to see here in this passage are the laborers and the harvest. The laborers and the harvest. You see it there in verses 1 through 3. You know, here, having kind of prepared uh, his, his people who are listening for what is to come in chapter 9. Remember, he's told them all the things that they are going to face, the difficulties, the trials that are going to be theirs. He now takes these 72 followers and he sends them out sort of as forerunners into all the places that he will go to take the gospel, to prepare those who he is going to come and speak to. Now, there's several things that that I want you to notice here. First, just in regards to these 72 or these 70, depending on on which manuscript you find, uh, there's clearly a connection here. I think we can say that definitely between the number that Jesus appoints and the Old Testament. Many scholars have noted this. The issue is, is depending on what Old Testament script you find, some say 72 and some say 70, and so making the connection is difficult. It could be back to the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. I know Bradley Sunday School class, y'all just got through kind of covering that section. Uh, There, uh, Moses lists for us the generations of Noah, all the nations that came from him, and they number 70. So very well, Jesus could be saying, here, I'm sending out to all the nations, my people. I'm sending out the word to all the nations. Another possibility is that at the end of Genesis, as Jacob's family goes into Egypt, there's 70 of them that go there into Egypt. Again, Jesus now is establishing a new Israel through this number. And there are other possibilities. And really, the the point is not to be able to know for sure what the connection is, but it's to see that there is a connection that Jesus, once again, is through this uh, effort fulfilling the Old Testament. That he is once again bringing the reality that the Old Testament pointed us to by sending out these followers to take the good word with him. And so you'll recall that, that as we, uh, last week or two weeks ago, uh, as we discussed these 72, one thing that we noted about them was that there doesn't seem to be anything exceptionally special about them, right? Uh, Luke doesn't even record their names. He doesn't record any special gifts or offices that they would seem to have uh, that would make them perfect candidates uh, for doing what Jesus calls them to do. Uh, He doesn't tell us that they were pastors or or elders or deacons, though they may have been. Uh, He doesn't say that they had uh, anything that exceptionally qualified them like the 12 or like John the Baptist or like Paul. 
Well, it would seem that, that these were 72 ordinary, and I put that in quotation marks because I don't really like that word, but 72 ordinary Christians, people who had heard Christ's words, they had sat in the pews, as it were, and now they wanted to follow Christ. And here is how he calls them to follow. He sends them out to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Friends, here, here is the purpose that I want us to see. Here is what I'm trying to drive us towards. Christ makes it clear here, just as he makes it clear in Matthew chapter 28, that the calling for his church, the calling for his people, the call to evangelism, it is not just for the pastor. It is not just for the session, though they surely should be leading the way. It's not just for the missionary in a foreign land, but it's a call to all of us, to any of us who are resting in Christ. It's a call, certainly, to the church as a whole. As one commentator says, he says, The same Lord who calls us to follow him also calls us to go out and to preach the gospel. Every cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. I like that last sentence. It's a mouthful, but it's good. A cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. Each of you, we as a church, we might even say we are obligated to go out and to affect or infect, as C.S. Lewis says, infect our community with the good news of the kingdom. This, we might say, is the ordinary call, again, quotation marks, the ordinary call of Christ's church. We are to proclaim, we are proclaimers of the word. We exist to to glorify him and to declare him to a lost word, to a lost world. But notice here, uh, notice uh, that that ours is also not just a call, but but it is an urgent call. It's an urgent purpose, isn't it? There in verse 2, he says, the harvest is. It's plentiful. In other words, the the season, the time to reap, it is here, right? It it is time to gather in. But what's the the challenge of a harvest season? It doesn't last long, right? You have to get in there and get it done. The the crops that they begin to rot or the weather changes. And so farmers, they have to act urgently. How do they work? I remember when Mr. Rick, when he first planted the the biggest garden that I can remember him having, uh, it seemed that that every day he would say, hey, we've got to go pick this, whatever it was. It may have been corn or squash. It was probably squash because good grief, squash. But it was a lot. It was a lot. And every day you had to do it because if you waited, what was going to happen? It was going to rot. It was going to be gone. Something was going to eat it. Right? So you had to go right then. It's always amazing to me when you're traveling between Chupelo uh, and New Albany. If you go late at night and it's harvest season, what are those tractors doing even in the middle of the night? They have their lights on and they're going, right? They're, they are doing the work while it's time to do the work. There's an urgency about what they're having to do. Well, friends, that's true for us as a church as well. We know that it's harvest time. We know because we have God's word that this time will not last forever. And so we labor in the harvest, a harvest not of crops, but of souls that will never die with urgency. 
This call, it can't wait, but we must head into it immediately. Now again, this would be true no matter what, but considering what is on the line, considering what is at stake, it's even more urgent, isn't it? Consider, consider what Jesus says there in verse 2. He says the harvest is plentiful, but notice what else he says. The laborers are few. There's a work shortage. You know, we, last week we were in the mountains, and it seemed like everywhere we went, every restaurant that we went into, there, there was empty tables everywhere, but the wait was always two hours, two and a half hours. We went in one restaurant particularly, uh, and we actually got a table. But bless their hearts, there was about 12 tables that they were working, and there were three of them working them. And they were, I mean, they were busting it. They were having to go as hard as they could to do what the work that was set before them. Friends, again, in a much greater way, this is the truth for us. Jesus says there are very few who are willing to do the hard work of sowing and reaping. And so we are spurred to action all the more. But finally, here in this first point, notice how that action begins. What does he say there? He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, do what? Go get some more programs. Go, go up your recruitment so that you can get more people to go out into the world. That may be good things to do, but that's not where he starts. He says instead, pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into the harvest. Our action, it begins with prayer. It begins on our knees as we want to do evangelism. And surely we do if we want to follow Christ and do what he has called us to do as a church. Well, friends, it begins on our knees in prayer. It begins as we look to the one, the only one who can give any ultimate success. And really, that is the theme of this passage, isn't it? As we go every, at every turn, what, what, is, what is it that, that is brought out? It is Christ who calls. It is Christ who sends. It is Christ who gives them the power to do extraordinary things. I wish we had more time because these people who start out so ordinary, just normal church folks, notice what they are able to do. Exactly the same thing that the 12 apostles are able to do. They heal. They, they take the word out and they are casting out demons. They are doing all of these amazing things. But why are they able to do it? It's because Christ has sent them out. And ultimately we see that it is Christ who writes not only their names, but any names in the book of life. Friends, our efforts, they begin and they end looking not to ourselves, not to ourselves. They begin looking to Jesus. Now, we see laborers, and we see the harvest. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to see a single-minded focus, a single-minded focus. Now, having said all that we've said before, it seems that, that Jesus also wants to make it clear that, that while he is calling us to do great things, the calling that he gives us is not an easy one. Uh, it is not one that, that is going to be um, uh, accomplished without some hardship. The, the word labor implies that, right? If it is labor, that doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy time. 
And in fact, he says, I'm sending you out. How? As lambs among wolves. Now, I imagine that we've all watched enough Animal Planet or enough uh, Planet Earth documentaries that we know if you send a lamb out to the wolves, how that ultimately is going to end, right? It's not going to be a very good thing. There's going to be some difficulties for that poor little lamb. Jesus says that's how he sends us out into the world. So we surely can expect times of difficulty, of discouragement, even of persecution. Yet notice there in verses 4 through 9, he calls us to a single-minded focus so that we can face whatever may come. And he does it by giving us these instructions and also by showing us his sure provision. First, he gives these 72 Uh, Some interesting packing details, right? Uh, He says there in verse 4, he says, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. That's not very much to go on, right? You would think if you were going to leave, you want to take a lot of things with you. And certainly we need to recognize that, that in some way, these details are exclusive to these 72. Later on in chapter 22, he's going to send the apostles out and he's going to say, take a money bag with you. And so this is not a universal truth as we go out. But, but the heart behind it, I think, is. What's Jesus trying to teach these people as he sends them out with very little or nothing? By leaving them in this way, what are they going to have to do? What are they forced to depend on completely? Forced to depend on him, right? They're forced to trust in the Lord, to care for their needs. They, They don't have time to think about their money. They don't have time to think about where they'll stay. They don't have time to think about what they're going to eat. Theirs is a single-minded focus, and so they are trusting in God to supply all their needs. And notice here, notice how he does it. He does it through the generosity of his people. Look at verse 7 there. He says, well, actually in verse 5, he says, whatever house you enter to enter into, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And then here it is, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. It was appropriate for for these laborers, these workers, to accept the help of others. I want you to notice how it is that that they are to do it. They're to do it with an attitude of contentment, right? That they are to trust in whatever it is that the Lord provides. He he says there, don't go from house to house. Don't don't look for a mansion to stay in. Don't don't look for gourmet meals. Don't don't look for for the best of the best. You accept what I bring into your path. You stay there with those people. In other words, they're not to seek the best lodging, the, the best food. Their chief end is not their own comfort at all. You remember, that's what he has said throughout chapter 9. Their goal, again, is this single-minded focus on the harvest of souls that is at hand. J.C. Ryle, he says this as in regards to those instructions. He said, they ought to remind us of the necessity of simplicity and otherworldliness in our daily life. We must be aware of thinking too much about our meals and our furniture and our houses and all those many things which concern the life of the body. We must strive to live like men whose first thoughts are about the immortal soul. We must endeavor to pass through the world like men who are not yet at home, 
and are not over much troubled about the fare they meet on the road and at the end. Blessed are those who feel like pilgrims and strangers in this life and whose best things are yet to come. Friends, what a challenge that is to us. As one commentator says, the time is too short and the work is too important for us to dilly-dally. Too many Christians lead divided, distracted lives. We rush from one thing to the next without ever taking time to make sure that what we are doing is the best way to fulfill our commitment to Christ. He goes on to ask, Is it any wonder then that sometimes we don't know whether we are really making a difference? Friends, how true that is. How true that is as we approach this Christmas season. We live in a time where we are pulled in a thousand different directions by a thousand different things. Everything and everyone vies for our time and our attention and our devotion. And in many ways, it seems that in it all, we have forgotten who we really are. Again, we have forgotten What is truly at stake? The souls of our neighbors, the souls of our friends, of our children, of our family. And yes, even the souls of our enemies, souls again that will live forever, that will never die. Some that will live apart from Christ for all of eternity. And are we content to say, you know, I'm good. I'm trusting in the Lord. I'm good. And so somebody else can can take care of everybody else. Somebody else can take care of of spreading the gospel to other people. If that's what we're content to do, then, then I'm not sure that we really understand the gospel at all. In fact, I'm not sure that we truly know Jesus ourselves if we are content to say that. If we know what we have been saved from, then our single-minded focus is looking to Jesus and looking to the purpose that he has given us. We've seen the labors and the harvest. We've seen a single-minded focus. And then thirdly and finally, I want you to notice decisive results. Decisive results. Now, again, given what we've said up until this point, uh, we might think that that ours is uh, a challenge to go and to convert the world. And certainly there's a sense where that may be true. But remember, our call is to do what? It is to proclaim the gospel. It is to go out and tell people about what Jesus has done. And ultimately, it is God who gives the results. As Bill always used to say, God is not calling us to be successful. He is calling us to be faithful. He will handle the results. And I want you to notice how how decisive those results can be. On the one hand, he says, the houses that you go in, the people who accept you, who accept the message that you bring, for them there is peace in verses 5 and 6, right? They accept you, they accept me. On the other hand, people who reject these messengers, they are not simply rejecting these men, they are also rejecting the one who sends them. They're also rejecting the son and the father. Now, first, we need to take that as a great note of encouragement. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus. When when the Lord appears to him, what does he say? He says, Paul, why are you persecuting who? Me, right? But the idea here is that Jesus so identifies with his people that what is done to them is done to him. 
And so as we go out with the gospel, that gives us confidence to know that however people may treat us, they're not simply treating us that way, also treating the Lord that way. But I want you to notice, especially with these people who reject Christ, notice the gravity, the cost of such a mistake. First, Jesus commands the 72, he says, for those towns that reject you. He, he gives them this kind of spiritual object lesson, right? He says, go out into the streets and wipe the dust off your feet. The idea here is that just as I have wiped this dust off, so too will you be rejected. So too will you be condemned. In fact, Jesus says there the judgment of Sodom. Think about that. Sodom, that town that, that was so lost, that was so terrible. He says the judgment for that town will be more bearable than that for these towns who have rejected him. Do we begin to feel what's at stake here? If not, Jesus, he continues, right? He calls out these towns in Galilee who have already rejected him. And he says, if Tyre and Sidon, good, again, pagan towns, if they had seen the miracles that Jesus has done, had done, he said, they would bow before me. They would repent in sackcloth and ashes. They would believe. And yet you have not. And what is the result? He says the fire that fell on Sodom will be light. It will be nothing as compared to the judgment that these towns will receive. Now, friends, there's a great warning in that to every single one of us sitting here right now. The idea is, is the judgment for those who have hear, heard the word and have not done anything with it will be greater than those who never heard the word at all. And so we need to be careful. We, as, as God's people, need to search our own hearts here as well. But here, we see that the sobering reality, that with the message we take out, there, there is no middle ground. The message we proclaim, as Paul says, will be life to some. It will be a, a fragrance, a sweet of fragrance, aroma of life. For others, it will be an aroma of death. They will reject it. And they will do so only to their own peril. It's again, the stakes here, that they could not be any higher. The results could not be any more decisive. And so again, the call, the call to Christ's church, it becomes even more urgent. Will we go? Well, as we try to conclude this, as we try to, to wrap this together, friends, let me ask you some, some hard questions. Questions that, that I think I already know the answer to. But questions we must wrestle with nonetheless. Consider our church. Consider our church life. How well are we going out with the gospel at New Albany Presbyterian Church? How many lives outside of our own are we seeing changed by the gospel? What impact are we having on our community, on the people outside of these four walls? Honestly, when's the last time that we had an adult conversion in our church? I don't know the answer to that question. Some of you probably do, but I don't know the answer to that question. When was the last time we as a church or as an individual shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody who does not believe? I know that's a lot of questions, but how would we answer them? 
As my point is not to crush our spirit or to rack us with guilt. I simply want to remind you of the purpose that God has given us as his people. And it is my prayer that, that he will drive us towards fulfilling it. Guys, as I look out at all of you, consider the way that God has worked in your life. Consider just the bare minimum, the fact that he has saved you from your sins. That's enough to go out and tell the world about, that he would love sinners like us. But as I consider the things that he has done in your lives, great things, hard things, difficult things, he has equipped us in a mighty way to take the gospel out into the world. He has equipped each of us individually with things that, that gifts that none of the rest of us have so that we can share this good news. Friends, no matter who you are, Christ is sending you into the harvest. So y'all, let's go. I mean that in every possible way. Let's go. Proclaiming his greatness. Proclaiming his grace. Proclaiming the joy of knowing the love of such a great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider this, uh, Lord, the reality is our hearts are not prone to, to want to do this work of evangelism that you have called us to. Lord, we, we want to sit inside our own four walls. We want to do the, the things that we want to do. It's so comfortable. It's so easy to do that. And yet, Father, you have not called us to comfort. If we have learned nothing else over the last few weeks here in Luke's gospel, it is that you have not called us to simply sit and wait. Lord, you have sent us out into a world, a world of unbelievers, uh, to share the good news of what you have done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us purpose, uh, not just as individuals, but as a whole, so that we might go out and affect this community. Uh, Lord, show us ways that we can do that. It doesn't have to be simply uh, by, by beating people over the head with the Bible, though that may be necessary. Uh, but often, Lord, you just call us to live faithfully wherever we may be, whether it's in our homes or at work. You just call us to act like your people. So, Lord, make us those kind of people. Make us those people that Peter says have a hope that is within them, that others see and want to know about it. And, Lord, when we are asked, help us to be faithful. Help us to have the answer to give. Lord, now, as we consider this Christmas season, a time where the world knows it or not, their hearts are almost focused on the truth of what this season is all about, Help us to go out and to proclaim it. Help us to, to let the world know the truth of why we celebrate. What an opportunity we have. Lord, make us faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.